You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade-plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive changemakers. Coming up on three years of the pandemic, one thing has become increasingly clear. Not everyone experienced the same pandemic. Racialized groups suffered higher levels of exposure to the virus and increased financial burdens while struggling to access necessary health care. With a particular spotlight on the experiences of personal support workers working in the heart of the COVID storm in long-term care facilities, this episode focuses on how the ongoing racialization of the Canadian labour market has impacted workers. This episode was first aired during Social Justice Week 2021. Since then, a Statistics Canada study has found that the COVID-19 death rate was much higher for racialized people compared to non-racialized people, with Black people having the highest mortality rate. In this episode, which first aired as a podcast, we'll hear from an anonymous personal support worker who wanted to share her experience and expert knowledge without fear of negative repercussions from her workplace. She believes that employers must take a greater interest in the opinions of PSWs and act on the needs of employees providing frontline services. But first we'll hear from Deborah Slater. She's a personal support worker who sits on the advisory board of the Empower Project, Upstream Lab. It is a community-based participatory action research project designed to understand the work conditions and health of PSWs. My name is Deborah Slater and I work as a personal support worker. I am from the city of Toronto and I've been living in Canada now for about say, approximately 25 years. My educational background is that of a personal support worker as well as a bit of a business merge as well. I've always been privileged to be around the seniors and I love the seniors. And Back home, I had my grandmother that I used to assist in. And then I know being at that age of a senior, it's very vulnerable. And so there's so much more help that is needed for them, by them. And so tomorrow morning, I'm going into work and I have to do about 10 residents. And out of those 10 residents, I might have eight of them that is just totally dependent on my strength, on my support, on, on my care. And that's just me having to shower 
get them dressed, comb their hair, brush their teeth, put on their clothes, put them up in the lift, put them in the chair, repositioning, feeding them. So that is what happened in a two hour span every day. So can you imagine that? And then on top of that, we have to do what we call our daily charting. And that alone, to chart 10 residents, and you have to do it, and they have it by time-wise. So you have to be on time to chart it, specific times. Anything that you do for the residents, you do have to chart it. So that takes up a bulk of the time as well. So physically, it's hard on our body. Being a PSW, especially during this time, it's really hard on our body because we have to constantly bend. We have to squat. And we just have to keep moving. And there are times where we might lift a residence and we may not lift in the right body posture and we hurt ourselves. And that also affects work stats in terms of staffing level. And so we really have a bunch of responsibility in terms of keeping ourselves healthy, keeping ourselves strong, keeping our minds clear to really do the job that is set out for us. What I really find is that and I believe, and I see it, PSW don't really get the recognition that we deserve because we are one step away from becoming a nurse. And then sometimes we're there to even tell the nurses, hey, look, this medication is not working for this residence. The behavior has changed. The expressions has changed. So we really have to keep a close eye on everything to report. And so we can also get the help from the ministry, from the government, because it is so important in our charting in order to keep these facilities open in order to keep the funding going. It's all based on our observation and our report. So we are just as important as RNs and RPN and all these um, healthcare workers. I might go in and we're short one staff. And then now the work becomes double. And I really do it for the love of the residents because... We all know there's so much more improvement that's needed in the facilities, and we don't really get that. Deborah Slater has worked as a PSW for over 15 years in long-term care facilities and also in the community setting, helping seniors who still live in their homes. In addition to the overall challenges of her work, as a Black woman, she has also encountered prejudice and bigotry on the job. A recent survey of PSWs found nearly one in four reported direct experiences of racism, including being called racist, derogatory names. Just to tell you another story about my run-ins with discrimination, I used to work for this agency and they had nobody else to send to this residence. And when I showed up at the residence house and I rang the doorbell, this residence was of a white descent. And when the minute she saw me, she said, who are you? What do you want? I said, well, I was sent here by the agency to provide care for you. And she said to me, well, I told the agency over and over, do not send me anybody of color for any services that I need performed. And I said to her, I'm sorry, but they're fresh out of every other colors that you want. So I'm the only color that's available and I show up. And she said, you are not coming into my house. I don't want black people in my house. And she got on the phone and she called the agency and she said, did I not say to you, do not send me any black workers? And the agency said to her, I am sorry, but we have no one else to send. And so you either let Deborah help you or you'll have to wait. 
I talked to another racialized woman who pointed to the precarious nature of how personal support workers' jobs are organized and how that impacts her and many PSWs who've been in Canada for years but still don't have permanent resident status. The irregular hours and unpredictability of when shift work would be scheduled are major hurdles. I worked as a personal support worker in Ontario. I worked in a long-term care setting, specifically a community-based setting with people with developmental disabilities. And the bulk of my work was during COVID, but I did work a few months before that as well. They were just, in my case, the people that I was helping, the people I was supporting, were people with developmental disabilities. So disabilities since birth, and they needed 100% care, personal care, feeding, cleaning, personal care. Most of them were also nonverbal. That's the population that I worked with. And it was in a community setting, meaning that it was pretty much their, it is actually their house. They live in their house as roommates, a few of them, and we come there and it's also our workplace. A typical shift in my case, because I was working with people with complex medical needs. So there's a lot of medications and the feeding is not necessarily oral, the feeding could be with the gastrostomy or a G-tube. That would take up a lot of time, the medications alone. And then there's the feeding itself. Every single week is different from the week before. You're waking up in the morning really early on Monday and working for maybe like eight hours. But then guess what? You're going to have to go again maybe the day after at five, and then you're going to have to go at 11 p.m. And the fact that they're few at the start is bad, not just because of the immense room for this to occur, but also because you get no benefits when the hours are very few. And as you'll see, this will be something I'm sure I'll mention again, because this is definitely, there's no doubt that this is the main aim. A lot of employers or all employers in this sector, I can say even, <laughs> don't want to give full-time jobs to save money for that would be spent in benefits. And that's why as a personal support worker, you never start working full-time ever. The only people who are working full-time in my workplace are people probably who've been working for like 20 years or something. And there are people who've been working 20 years and still don't get full-time. This is just typical of this work, part-time and no benefits, irregular. As a foreign worker, I had some unique challenges working in this field. And the main thing is that it delays the process of becoming a permanent resident by what can be years. Because when you come to Canada, if you work 30 hours or more, your employer can give you a letter that says, this person is working 30 hours or more. You take that and put it in your application and you can apply, you're eligible to apply. It doesn't mean you're gonna become a permanent resident, but you're not eligible to apply for permanent residency if you're not working 30 hours, if you're working less than 30 hours a week. Yeah, in personal support work, of course, as I've mentioned, that's pretty much impossible <laughs> for years and years and years, if at all. And yeah, that basically delays you. You could have gotten permanent residence in maybe six months, and now you might get it in years. <laughs> a lot of foreign workers work in this field, and not by accident. These people are being actively recruited into this field because there are not enough Canadians applying for this job. Foreign workers' needs should be attended to because of the effort that is being put in recruiting them. Every single job fair I would go to would be directed to foreign workers, but there was no equivalent 
support for foreign workers or consultation with foreign workers to ask them for their needs. That's something that is also a big issue on the minds of many foreign workers. And then the third main thing for personal support workers who are not Canadians is that they don't get insured by provincial health insurance. You don't get insured. And that is because one of the requirements for OHIP is that you're working 30 hours a week. You have to be working full-time, and this is how the government defines full-time. That's a very, very big stressor as a personal support worker, especially in a job where you feel like you could get sick anytime for whatever reason, and the exhaustion of it and everything, you're not insured. And this is also new. I just want to point out that the rolling back health insurance for part-time foreign workers is also new and also intentional and happened, I believe, in 2012 by Stephen Harper's government because they wanted to prevent medical tourism. Nobody's going to become a personal support worker (laughs) to medically tour Canada or whatever. And there has been no evidence of its effectiveness in actually saving the government any money. I just want to put that out there because when I first came, I thought it was a matter of fact that you just have to work a certain number of hours to get healthcare, but no, (laughs) it was intentional. The COVID-19 crisis presented an opportunity to make serious changes that would improve PSW's working conditions. As this anonymous worker shared, the changes employers brought in mostly just made PSW's lives harder. After the pandemic hit, if I were to summarize all of the main issues in one sentence, I would say that every PSW took a hit and no accommodations or compensations were made by employees. After the pandemic hit, all of the above, all of the things I initially mentioned were still issues, of course. On top of that, PSWs were required to choose one job from their many part-time jobs that they're doing at the same time. And that is to limit the transmission of COVID within long-term care. And that's totally understandable because unfortunately, this is where most of the deaths were. And PSWs who go from place to place are at risk of transmitting the disease. They were asked to only choose one location to work at. Unfortunately, the result of that was that many long-term care locations became short-staffed, extremely short-staffed, more than they already were. And yet, even with all of these places having these vacancies, The part-time hours remained unchanged. No offers to full-time for the existing people were made and no upgrading, there was no upgrading to full-time status. Your schedule stayed the same. You were still just picking up hours of people as if they're on vacation or whatever, right? Instead, actually what happened, you were picking up these hours and meanwhile, the employers are working really hard to hire new PSWs to work the measly few hours. of the people who had to choose between their jobs. They're being hired on a temporary basis, like maybe one year or whatever, to work these hours, (laughs) which is laughable to me, honestly. I just want to make an important note here. And the note is that it was the low pay and minimal hours that forced PSWs to work all of these jobs in the first place. Deborah Slater notes the waves of other issues the pandemic brought with it. So a lot more time has been taken or used 
to provide the care now because it's like we have to do our due diligence or protocol by observing and ensuring all safety measures are in place in terms of from PPE, because before the pandemic, we don't worry about PPE, which will take up about five minutes of your time just to get dressed. So that part really have a lot of mental strain on everyone involved because a lot of confusion for the residents because today they remember you as we are now and I put on a mask and they have no recognition of who we are and it forces them to use more of the brain cells that they don't really have to say, who are you? Try to understand the muzzled word that's coming out of your mouth. So I have seen the deterioration of the pandemic on everybody, not just residents, but staff as well. And from a communication standpoint, it has really dropped. It makes me depressed to see that we're not really getting the kind of support that I think we should have. Empathy, compassion. I feel like it's not there. We never really had it before COVID neither. There's that poor communication between the management and the staff of supporting and really keeping abreast of how we are doing mentally and physically to sustain the energy to keep working. And the dependency on us, PSWs, to provide that companionship, to provide that security, to provide that assurance, to provide that love, to provide that care, to provide that thing that keeps them together we're not able to do so because of the workload and because of all the challenges that we face on a daily basis because we have our family too that we have to go home to and sometimes we've given so much of ourselves to our work that we don't have anything else to pour out into our family because we poured everything into our work there's so many things mentally that we have to process and we have to introspect as well in our own life because a lot of people from the work perspective during COVID has given up, has removed themselves completely because they felt like it was too much for their body, mind, and their spirit. Yeah, it has really affected us mentally. For instance, we've lost one of our co-workers, not through COVID, but the fact that it, in the beginning, it was so overwhelming that she went home and she had a heart attack just work so hard doing double shifts because our partners are not able to come to work due to their own personal issues, whether it's they don't want to catch COVID or they just don't have the emotional or the physical strength to do it. But the hours that we've put in in the last year, it's a lot of hours because I have done so many doubles. I passed out at work. It's very hot and you're wearing a mask, and you're wearing a shield, and you're wearing a gown. It's a lot. We've faced a lot in the last year and a half, and honestly, we're still facing it. Because just recently, we had a case, and we had to go right back into that bubble. Like I said, I haven't really seen management taking a front row seat to say, well, we understand what you're going through. We're all facing this together. Here's the kind of resources that we have for you in case you need someone to talk to or you need some sort of outlet to express yourself. We haven't gotten that. We haven't gotten any incentive to say, you know what, you guys have been here. We support you. We appreciate you. We acknowledge you. Here is this. Here is that. We haven't gotten that. And when we go out there and we do our job to provide stable health, 
We provide care, companionship, activities of daily living, restoration, everything that a person needs holistically, and we provide that. But then at the same time, we're not being respected and we're not being treated and we're not being acknowledged. Then I think that's take away from the whole aspect of healthcare because that's what healthcare is about compassion. Healthcare is about empathy. Healthcare is about love. It's about guidance. It's almost like the fruit of the spirit. That's what healthcare is. And when we don't get those presents happening, then it takes away from the whole healthcare experience. It takes away from the resident-centered experience. And it takes away from you as a person as well, in terms of just living your life to the best of your ability. You're not able to do that because you're bombarded by all these barriers. And we need to break down a lot of the barriers that we're facing as PSWs. And we actually appreciate people like yourself and Empower Network and St. Michael's Hospital who are on this journey with us to actually get us to be recognized and acknowledged. And so I really would like the Empower Network to continue to strive for that because this is really the platform where we can express ourselves and support each other and share our stories and just feel like we're part of the healthcare field. So it should be a concern. It should be an open discussion and it should be something that can be resolved. Not just, like I said, it's not just a government issue, not just an employer issue, but it's a world issue. It's a community issue. It's everybody's issue to really think and have an input as to how we can fix the crack in our healthcare system. This PSW explains the heavy toll the pandemic has had on her and her co-workers. I just want to say that the resulting impression that we get is that we are being pushed to pay the price for the series of outbreaks that happened in long-term care homes on top of being personally affected ourselves because personal support workers are also getting the virus. They're not just transmitting. <laughs> They're also losing their jobs. You're losing all of this income and you're offered absolutely no alternatives by your employers. So you've got this triple whammy that you have to be dealing with as a personal support worker. On top, of course, of the problems before Corona. All of this might seem quite self-serving, but a huge part of all of these complaints is that the quality of care that we're offering to the people we support is being affected by all of the exhaustion and the toll that that takes on our mental and physical health. And personal support workers love their job. I'm yet to find somebody who is there against their will. People want to do this work in spite of the terrible conditions. And they love the people they work with. Even though I left my job for personal reasons, I'm going back there and visiting the people I support. I want to say I love them. I don't know if that's appropriate. <laughs> you want to do your best, but you're not given the conditions to. You just feel like you're always fighting to do your best. Your well-being is not just yours. Your well-being is important for the people you support. And that's something that I don't think employers understand. I think this field is only freshly, like maybe in the last 20 years, starting to prioritize people with disabilities and prioritize their needs and shift away from the horrible institution system into something like community care, where we're trying to engage them in their communities and that sort of thing. So that's wonderful that we have that. But I think, unfortunately, we still haven't come to the realization that a part of that is also a part of caring for them and prioritizing them is caring for the people who care for them. 
Unfortunately, we have not, absolutely not come to that realization yet. That's really heartbreaking because you see somebody who's about to give birth. She's about to go into labor and she's still coming to work. Why are you still coming to work? And she tells me because she can't afford to lose the income that would come from these few days. The fact that we only have two sick days a year that are non-transferable to the next year if you don't use them takes a toll on you if you are somebody who feels at risk. And even as somebody who doesn't feel at risk, it's so funny because my coworker was telling me the other day that she's always thinking, what if I go to the hospital for some reason, for some emergency? I know that the first thought I will have is who's going to cover my shifts? The employer makes it very clear from the start that you are responsible to cover your own shifts. Something the government has done in response to the pandemic quite early on is to announce a pandemic pay increase for personal support workers. However, it was temporary a band-aid solution to a problem that was going to continue after the pandemic, which is very low wages for very overworked essential workers. When it came to the pandemic pay, we had to wait months before we received that. And this is something that is still being talked about today of how much little that is put in to support us as the foundation of the company that keep things afloat. Without the workers, you don't have a workplace. Pandemic pay increase might have been announced quite early on in the pandemic, but it took a few months. I took, I think it took maybe three, maybe months, I could be wrong, to come into effect. So in that time, my employer actually gave us a nice bonus during that time. And then when the pandemic pay finally got rolled out and the money was finally being sent to the locations, what my particular location did was send out a memo <laughs> saying <laughs> they're going to basically effectively refund themselves with the pandemic pay <laughs> and give us the difference because the pandemic pay was slightly more than the bonus they were giving us. People were angry. <laughs> In a way, we never got the pandemic pay. And then they would give us like maybe cookies or, or like some like treat every now and then as an appreciation treat. So that was hilarious. But yeah, they're like, never mind. We don't want to give you a bonus anymore. We're just going to make sure that our pockets are full again. And some places didn't see it until I was in the, when I'm talking to other personal support workers in other locations, they didn't see it at all. Like there wasn't even that like little fake bonus in, at first. Or they just they didn't see it until way later. Who knows if they were getting the money from before? Who knows what's happening? You know what I mean? Yeah, this definitely didn't go over well. These two PSWs discuss what changes are needed now to make life better. To be honest, what do I really want to see change going forward is that mm -hmm. if that you need, you know, urgent support, such as full-time job, permanent wage increase, benefits, increasing staffing levels so we're not burnt out at the end of the day, and respect and just protect our whole being. We need something permanent. We need something in writing. We need something that says PSWs are recognized, PSWs are acknowledged. Here's the benefit package. And so we need a government who's going to support us. We need a government who's going to pay us for what we deserve. We need a government who's going to create other platforms where we can grow, where we can express ourselves, where we can feel, like I said earlier, like we're a part of the healthcare team holding it together. And I believe that we are the glue. And so the government really need 
to spend a lot more time investing in us and developing us and supporting us and actually just caring. But going forward, there are five main asks that are linked to the work of the Upstream Lab. And they are seven paid sick days a year, protection from reprisals when raising health or safety concerns, a transparent system for addressing racial discrimination, adequate wage, and tangible steps towards stability of employment. These are also things that can start right now, but I can see that they would be more long-term. So I think that just making the increase permanent and giving people more scheduled hours would be the most easy and logical thing to do right now. And of course, the smaller asks would be something like support foreign workers. If you want them so badly, maybe give them an incentive to come, tell them that you're going to support them with their immigration process so that they can be a part of the community without this whole fear of, am I ever going to get permanent residence? Am I ever going to get health insurance? That sort of thing. For Deborah Slater, who now sits on the advisory board of the Empower Project Upstream Lab, the time is ripe for renewed organizing. So what it's been like for me in part of the Empower Network is that I actually love the fact that we have a platform where PSWs can actually voice their opinions. They can talk about any changes or any challenges that they're facing and know that they're not alone. And the fact that the word empower is such a powerful word because we're basically empowering the powerless because there are so many things that we can cover from benefits to working condition to wage and whole systemic change in terms of just unity. I am glad to be part of this network because it provides so much more support, especially a voice for precarious workers who feel like we're just here, but nobody cares. And so the Empower Network is saying, look, we're here, we care, we're actually putting in our infrastructure to help bring this awareness. It's also long overdue that the rest of society start really hearing PSWs and properly valuing the work that they do. It's not like us and them. These are your families we're taking care of. This is you we're taking care of. And we are you. <laughs> I want them to listen to personal support workers' stories. The government does a lot of talking for personal support workers and feels accusatory a lot of the time, the things that are being said. And I want people to do their own research and see what personal support workers are doing and talk to people with disabilities, ask them about their lived experiences, ask them about the people who care for them, ask them about their day-to-day, because a lot of the time, the people doing the speaking on behalf of these communities, and I'm talking about people with disabilities and the people who care for them. A lot of the time, the people talking on behalf of them don't have the necessary background or the experience to do so. And unfortunately, they fall into a lot of very, very big ears in terms of what they say that can have bad consequences on us, meaning personal support workers and people with disabilities, meaning that they hamper our efforts into making the world hopefully a, a bit of a more accessible place to the people that we support. And we don't want that. 
personal support workers, and I say we, I mean, we don't want to make people with disabilities' lives even less accessible than they already know. Please do your research and listen to people's first-hand accounts. That was an anonymous personal support worker and Deborah Slater in the podcast episode on the front lines of the pandemic, Racialized Workers and COVID from Social Justice Week 2021. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we've highlighted a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. This is our final episode. If you'd like to catch up on the other episodes, you can find them on CJRU's SoundCloud account. We encourage you to check them out. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening. <laughs>